Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight Q&A. My name is Andrew Krause and I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 20 years ago and we've been coaching inventory inventors ever since. We have students in over, we've had students in over 65 countries um, and we're very proud of what we do and we're very proud of these, these free educational things that we do for the inventing community. We have a YouTube show, check that out if you haven't and during this whole COVID thing, I think this will be my 11th full hour of q and I've been doing it every Wednesday. Hopefully you guys are enjoying it. The feedback has been that you guys um, do enjoy it. So I really enjoy doing these. Um, type your questions into the, the chat over there, and I'll, I'll answer your questions. And we're just going to have fun. So we're starting at 10 minutes past the hour. I'll go for a full hour if you guys have enough questions, which never seems to be a problem. And uh, as you guys can tell, I can talk. I love answering questions about licensing. We're going to have a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, so we see so got some people on here. Um, I like, I like the handles. I always fun handles. Um, time lizard, you know? Um, so Hen, Henrita says, uh, hello, Andrew. Sorry, I didn't pronounce your name right. Hello, Henrita. Uh, Kimberly has a question. I see one from Adam and Jeff. So just start typing them in. <clears throat> We've never, I don't think I've ever been able to answer all the questions. We get so many. So if you have one that's important to you, um, type it in sooner rather than later. Um, Kimberly says, good evening, Andrew and all. If I have an idea that could be designed two totally different ways, how do you decide which one to show companies or do I show them both and let them decide? So it, it really depends. I mean, most of the, at the very least, what you want to do usually is on your marking materials, the sell sheet, you'll have what you've got to pick one, okay, that's emphasized. And most of the time, that's all you're going to do. You're going to do one. And if you've got some other product variation, but you really got to think like, does this product variation make sense? Now, sometimes our students will have a smaller picture. Like you got the big picture, like this is the product. You get a smaller picture with a caption, like some, you know, this variation optional, or it's a piece that's optional. Um, but you don't want to try to present your marketing materials with 20 different variations. That doesn't go over very well. You know, companies, and, and I've said this many times before on these Q&As, They'll give you six to 10 seconds. So if you include eight variations, it's too freaking confusing. You have to, you have to basically have one version. And occasionally, it really depends. Our coaches help our students with this and figuring out when is it appropriate to say um, optional accessory or something like that. Okay. But if it's too, what did, what did uh, Kimberly write? Two totally different ways. Ah, it really depends. I'd have to look at it, Kimberly, to really say. Um, two totally different ways. You, you really got to pick one. That's kind of weird because when you do your marketing, the marketing is for them. So it's, it's what they would show their customer. So would you ever show a customer, here's two different ways of doing it? You never would do that, would you? So that's why it's really not a good thing to be doing. You have to kind of pick one in most of the cases. Now, as always, when Stephen and I talk about licensing, it's not always black and white. Sometimes there's shades of gray and that's fine. But 
you really don't want to include total. I, I was going back and reading what you wrote two totally different ways. You know, my guess is if I looked at it, I'd be like, that one's better or that one makes more sense because of this or that or based on what else is in the marketplace. But to have two totally different versions, I, I don't think that's going to make sense most of the time. you got to pick one. Um, now, if they're not interested in one, you could say, well, I've got a different version of it. But really, in the end, what they're interested in is the benefit of your product. So if you've got two totally different ways of doing it, um, it's the same benefit. They're either interested in delivering that benefit to their customers or not. Um, now, they might be skeptical based on the version you're showing, oh, that work or not. I get that. But generally, uh, no, Kimberly. And, and I would say over the last 20 years, it's very rare that we would advise our students to do that. You got to pick. Um, uh, Adam says, hi, Andrew. You mentioned before that if a company asks to see your PPA that you shouldn't necessarily just hand it over to them. How do you avoid showing it to them without losing their interest? <clears throat> well, the first thing you do when you get interest is ne never show them your PPA, is to get on the phone and talk with them. What do you like? Change the subject. You know, anybody can drop you an email, send me your PPA, send me your prototype. And inventors do that all the time, not our students. And it's like, well, they asked me for that. I got to give that to them now. It's like you got your one prototype. You're going to send it to the company just because they dropped you an email back saying that you should do that instead of your PPA. You've got to create a relationship and a discussion with them to, because now you're not just a name, a faceless inventor. Now you're a person. You talk to them. You got them, more importantly, you got them talking about your product. So now they're getting more involved. So the fact that they take five, you know, you'll say five minutes or 10 minutes. It's never, it's always longer, right? But um, the fact they take five or 10 minutes to talk to you on the phone shows sincere interest. Them dropping an email back saying, send me a prototype of your patent, doesn't really, they're them committed much of anything to you. And so it's not about the fact that you don't want them to look at your PPA because they'll steal your idea. That's not the reason why you don't do that. The reason why you don't do it is it doesn't move the deal forward. So it's not really the reasons that a lot of you are thinking. Um, and But there is a huge benefit to a PPA in that, People can't see what you have or don't have. So holding back on that for a while, definitely not up front, is very advantageous. And it's a, it's a card to let you play this poker game so you can see if they're really interested. And if they don't take a few minutes to get with you on the phone, I don't think they're that interested. Um, Jeff says, hey, Andrew. So thank you for that question, Adam. Great question. <clears throat> Jeff says, hey, Andrew, uh, PPA is in place. As I work down my hit list and find a couple of brands that have their parent companies outside the U.S., is there anything special? Well, so many questions are coming in. Today. Is there anything special I need to do before contacting them? <clears throat> if they have their parent company outside the U.S., no, I don't think there's anything. If they're selling in the U.S., you know, I would tr always try to contact their U.S. division because there's no language barrier, although, gosh, in Europe, I'm always impressed with Europeans. They speak like three or four languages. More than likely, they'll be able to speak English just fine. It's us that can't speak their languages. But, um, no, I don't think there's anything else that you need to do uh, just because they have a parent company outside the U.S. I would always try to call, call the U.S. division um, or call the, the child company that is in the U.S. and call them. But if you can't get through to them, you can call the parent company as well. 
Pablo says, hello again from Los Angeles. Hello, Pablo. Uh, Brad says, awesome. Welcome, Brad. Um, Sherry says, I'm having a hard time getting responses from LinkedIn. What do you think of sending handwritten notes and sell sheet in snail mail? No. Sherry, uh, we're getting, our students are getting a 25 to 65% response rate. So what that means on LinkedIn, um, we have a new program that's included with a boot camp that um, teaches people, our resident LinkedIn for licensing experts, Benjamin Harrison, who's fantastic, teaches people how to reach out on LinkedIn when you're licensing. Um, and so 20, that, what it, that means, 25 to 65% is 25 to 65% of the time when our students reach out to somebody they don't know, like a marketing manager on LinkedIn, that they are getting back to them. They might say, no, we don't take submissions or no, it's not me. You, you, you need to send it to Bob. But you're doing something wrong on LinkedIn if you're not getting any response. Um, to be honest with you, sending a handwritten note in snail mail, it looks archaic somewhat. It looks like you're a clueless. I, I'm stereotyping here, just give you my knee-jerk reaction. It looks like you're uh, a little wacky, to be honest with you, these days. To send Now, if you have nice handwriting, great. That's a little better. Maybe not so much then. But it looks like, oh, I, I don't know how to send an email. I don't know how to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm so archaic that I'm sending you snail mail. Now, I think it could be done. In, and I, I mean, we've been doing this for 20 years. So there was a time where that's what our students would do in addition to calling and emailing. Um, but I, I think that it could work. But generally, I think it's a waste of time. I think what you need to do is tweak in your approach to calling and reaching out via LinkedIn, those two main methods, and then following up via email, too. You can also send emails. Um, but generally, I would say it's a waste of time. Could it work? Yeah. Um, but generally, a waste of time. Um, it, I know it's a weird thing to say that we got to this point, but in a lot of ways, it doesn't look professional. It could if you do it the right way, send in a FedEx package, it gets kind of expensive, you know, but generally I think you're, there's something wrong with your approach. Um, it's not LinkedIn that's the problem. Uh, Raymond says, if you do get your product license, should you negotiate that they cover your IP cost? And that, guys, for you that don't know, I just he's talking about patents for the most part, maybe trademarks, but intellectual property. Um, yeah, I mean, and there's different ways that you can do that. You can get them to just give you an advance. Um, you can get them to just pay for your patent. And when you do that, you never want to have them put it in their name. They give you the money, you give it to your attorney, and the way our InventRight students do it is the attorney will then reference the provisional patent that you filed. So they could just give you the money, or it could be an advance on royalties. So what that means is, let's say, say you have a reasonable independent practitioner, patent attorney, and they're going to do it for eight grand or something like that. Um, you could say, well, I'd like to get an advance on royalties um, to pay for the patent, which is going to protect you and me. You know, and a lot of times, you know, these the corporate folks, they have talk to other counsel where they charge 20K, 25K for a patent. So you never want to just say pay for my patent. You want to qualify it and have gotten some quotes from a patent attorney or two so that 
they're like, oh, they're not. So that what they're thinking is not 25K, but 8K or 10K. And there's a big difference between 10K and 25K. So always, that's a great tip is always um, be very, say I've got a very competent independent practitioner who can do it for this when you make the request. So an advance on royalties would mean that they would give you the money, usually not refundable, let's say $10,000. And then the first 10,000 that came in, came in in the way of royalties, they would keep, you know? And so, and, and that is pretty common. Now, some companies are going to say, oh, no, we're not, we don't care about patents. We'll just, we'll pay you royalties regardless. And then it's up to you. But if you want to file a patent, you can't. But see, that's, even that is less risky than what most inventors do. Most inventors, not knowing if there's any interest whatsoever, run out and file a patent. I know a lot of you have done that. Not, I'm not being critical of that. But I'm saying, like kind of am, but I'm saying you don't have to do that. So when you, when you, when you, when you know you have interest and you have a contract and if they're being really stubborn, they don't want to pay for the patent. If you pay for the patent at that point, that's a much lower risk level than paying for a patent, not knowing if anybody's going to be interested, if you're going to license it or be able to do anything with the product. So, you know, it's fairly safe. Now, could they not launch the product? Can, do people do licensing deals and they fail to launch and then you take it back under the licensing agreement? Yeah, that happens. Of course. Um, but it's, Either way, all the way around, it's a lot less risky than filing a patent, not knowing if there's anybody that has interest. So um, let's see. That was from Raymond. Uh, let's see. Marketing guy, what sort of minimum guarantee should you generally expect when licensing a product to a company? For example, 50% of forecasted sales for the year. Is there a ballpark number? Thank you. You want to... Minimum guarantees are not these large demands. Minimum guarantees are the minimum amount, and usually it's quarterly, every three months, that they need to pay you regardless of what they sell. You want it to be a very small fraction of what you think they can do. So, and it's sometimes as low as like 10% of what you think they can No company wants to pay you royalties on something that they're not selling and not making any money on. So it's an insurance policy that, that, they can't take the product and sit on it. That's what minimum guarantees are about. They have to pay you a minimum amount. It should be a very small fraction of what you think they can do based on your interviews with the company. And that's where a lot of inventors fall down. Our students, we guide them to interview the company extensively about what they're going to do with the project and then hold them to it in the contract, which includes minimum guarantees and other terms. Um, so uh, I think 50% is too much of what they say they can sell. It could, we've had students do deals like that and advise people to do that. But I think a small fraction is fine. It gets the deal done. And it doesn't matter. They could be really big. They don't want to pay you royalties on something that they decided not to move forward with and they're not selling because there was some issue. Um, so you do, it's a small fraction of what you believe they, they can sell. And, you know, if they sell more than those minimums, they need to pay you more. They need to pay you a royalty on every unit that you sell, the minimums are just there to guarantee that they don't sit on it and do nothing. That's what they're mainly there for. Um, CS says, and CS Andrew, my product developer is taking the invent right course right now and choose 
and chose my product to pursue. Oh, that's weird. Usually it's the inventor themselves that takes our program. How quickly do your students typically find success? You know, some of our students license their first product. Some of them license their second or third or fourth. This perception that you're going to license every single product you ever work on is ridiculous, um, which is the reason why when you spend, you know, 70 bucks on a provisional patent, a few bucks on a sell sheet, and, you know, maybe you cobble together a prototype from something you cannibalize at the store. Maybe you're paying somebody to prototype it, but it's affordable, that you always have the financial bandwidth to move on to the next one. CS, what I'll also say is, um, is don't, don't give up too soon. You know, I have a lot of students like to reach out to a bunch of companies, 30 companies, and they'll get a lot of non-specifics, not at this time, not a right match. And I always tell our students, don't throw that project in the garbage can, put it in the closet, reach back out six, eight months later. And some of those same companies that said no might say yes again if you send it to them again. So people are like, Andrew, they already said no. Why would I, why in God would I send them the same product again? And the answer is they're just in a different headspace. So before, they're people just like us. They're mar- the, the company does not reject you. An individual rejects your idea. And they don't reject it. They just say it's not a right match. So if a marketing manager is busy, they got two managers of their own, they got lots of projects going on, boatloads of emails, just like all of us do, or most of you do, I guess. I mean, anybody in business these days is getting emails and emails. And they look at it real quick, and especially if your presentations go, and they re- reply, oh, not interested or not a right match, or they don't reply at all, and you need to follow up them five times before they finally give you a no. Um, you know, they're busy. So, but then... Six months later, you send the same thing, and two day, two weeks earlier, their boss said, we need new products, and now they're showing interest, and they said no before. So this perception that no means no forever is wrong. Now, if, if five companies say this won't work because it's way too expensive, we don't think anybody – let's say five companies tell you essentially this. We don't think anybody's going to pay more than $19.95 for this type of product, and this is going to have to sell for 60 bucks. And five companies tell you that you have a problem, you have to fix. Don't go resubmitting that to companies. They're just going to go, why is he sending me this again? I told them why this is going to work. But if they don't tell you why it's not going to work, you can always reach back out. So CS, if you have, um, it looks at your product, uh, your product developers taking the course, if they don't, you got to be patient with him if he's working on licensing your product. It doesn't happen overnight. Okay. Um, Sherry, uh, CS says, Sherry, see, LinkedIn is difficult. People generally do not want to help you. It's because you guys are saying the wrong things, guys. It's not the case. I mean, I'll give you the the basics of what you want to say. First of all, you don't want to assume they're the person you want to send it to. You want to say, even though you know, like, oh, that's some marketing manager for that division. You're like, I know they're right. You don't say that. You say, who would be the, I I have a product that I'd like to license to your company. I think it's a right match for your product line. Who would be the right person to submit to? And then let them say, oh, me, or pass the buck off to somebody else and say, oh, no, that's Bob or Sally. And you never want to send your sell sheet or materials unsolicited. You don't write long letters. That's literally it. I mean, we have more detailed templates that we give our students that Benjamin gives folks, but that's the basics. 
So if you're not getting responses on LinkedIn, also, you, you can't look like a wacky inventor on your profile. Um, you shouldn't be publicly posting your invention ever um, on your profile. Um, and you're maybe not reaching out to the right companies and the right people in those companies, CS and Sherry. So you guys are doing something wrong. You, you can do it. you got to keep trying. Do not give up. I also don't know how you define difficult. You know, did you reach out to five people and you didn't get a response? I mean, that's normal, right? Like, our, like I said, our students are getting a 25 to 65% response rate, which I'm so happy about. I'm elated about. But if you're under the impression that every company should be replying to you within days, some people on LinkedIn in some industries, CS and Cherry, um, they're just not on there. Like they have a profile, but there's no activity. Maybe they log in every year when they think they're worried they're going to lose their job. That's the only time they log on LinkedIn, where others are on there all the time. So it can, you, you might just get some bad luck where you're trying to reach a bunch of people that just aren't active. Um, you can look and see if they've made posts and different things like that. A lot of people don't do that. They just communicate privately. But um, So hopefully that's helpful, guys. Um, Should we, Devin says, should we verbally sell our product idea over email as well as sending your marketing materials? I don't know what you mean by verbally. Um, you should not ramble on an email. You should not ramble in a video. You should either have a one-page, eight-and-a-half by 11 sell sheet, PDF that you attach in your email, or a video that is 30 to 60 seconds. It could be less than 30 seconds, but shouldn't be over a minute. Occasionally, I see something that's necessary, makes sense for it to be a minute and a half, but never more than that. Um, so should you verbally sell your product over email? I don't know what – you shouldn't verbally try to sell your product over the phone either. You should, you should just tell them you have a product that's the right match for their product line. You'd like to license it to them. Can you send them the sell sheet? Let the sell sheet do the selling. Trying to describe your product over the phone is like trying to describe how to tie your shoelaces over the phone. You just shouldn't do it. Um, Brandon, number one question. Well, Brandon, if it's your number one question, I better answer it. Love it. Um, if I have different variations of my idea, can I license to one company for money to pursue my own startup company with the other variation? Sure. But here's the thing. Not if you're going to step on their toes. So if your other variation is in a different geography, different distribution channel, different price point, and they're okay with that, absolutely, you can license it and then sell the other variation and start your own company. You know, um, People are very unrealistic about what it takes to start their own company, though. It's extremely expensive. Retailers, distributors don't like one-product companies. I'd rather deal with a big company that you can license to that has 50 products, 100 products, 20 products. But um, and then you have to create all those distribution channels from scratch. And, you know, most ideas, you need hundreds of thousands just to get barely started. People don't. Now, you can start a micro business and sell on Etsy or eBay or something like that. or Maybe even set up an account on Amazon. But then you're just hidden in the sea of 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 other products just like a website you put up a website and if you don't promote it nobody's coming and then to do all that for one product 
really, if you're starting a business and you want to sell the product yourself, if you have no intention on launching other product lines, in my opinion, you shouldn't do it because you're going to work your butt off. And it's going to be incredibly difficult to get distribution. And when you do, they're going to kick you the curb pretty quick if you don't come up with other products within a pretty short period of time, like maybe a year at the most. And the big, the big manufacturers will kick you to the curb too. So you're, let's say you're in Bed Bath & Beyond with this product. It's a unique towel rack, okay? And this big company, um, they have buyers. I mean, sorry, uh, reps that will go in there and talk to the buyers regularly. So let's say this company comes and they have 20 products in Bed Bath & Beyond. They talk to Bob the buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond. They say, hey, Bob, we got this new product. And, um, you know, we think it's really great. Can you make some space? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Well, you know what? We'll, we'll give you uh, discounts on these other two products that you already have on your shelf if you make space. And he's looking around, looking around. Guess who's the first person he's going to kick off the shelf? You with your one skew, one product company. Uh, you know, imagine if the buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond, if every single product had a different manufacturer. They want to shoot themselves in the head, you know? And so, um, so you have to be realistic with yourself. I admire people greatly that start their own businesses and launch their own products. It is way harder than you ever think. You can't be an idea person. You have to be more into running the company than about the product. It's not that much about the product anymore. I say that to make a point. Of course, it's about the product. But it's, you can have a great product, but if you don't do all the hard work, which is like a thousand times more work uh, than licensing, it's not going to be enough. So you know, Brandon, if you license your first variation and then you might be like, damn, I just want to do more licensing. And now you can take that money and you can sink it into a company, but you may lose it all. Or you can hang on to it and just license other products and have royalties coming in from multiple products. Um, but don't, don't get me wrong, guys. There's nothing wrong with venturing a product and selling it yourself. It's not what we do at InventRight. There's nothing wrong with it. But for most inventors, it's not the right match. The people that respect licensing the most are people that have run their own businesses and tried to sell their own products. They're like, damn, I don't have to do all that. They're going to put their money in and utilize their workforce, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, and they're already in 20,000 stores. Wow, I love it because it was so painful when I was working 80-hour work weeks with my business. You know, um, But it's, it's, it's not what's right for your product. This is what I always say. It's what's right for you. Don't make your family and yourself and everybody suffer and risk all your life savings because, 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 because it's the greatest thing in the world, you know. And with licensing, you don't have to take all those risks. Um, Julie says, hi, Andrew, if you aren't having luck with licensing and want to manufacture a product, is it a good idea to align some with someone who has experience with tooling and plastic injection molding? Um, I mean, that's like maybe one fiftieth of what you need to know to get your product to market. Now, is it good to have somebody that knows injection molding and about tooling? Yeah, but you need to know a lot more than that. It's insane what you need to know to run a business. So, yes, the answer is it would be great to align yourself with somebody honest that can help you in that area. Um, but the, also the question I have for you is, are, have you really pushed it out with that product? And if so, are you just such a believer in that one product that you can't move on and try to license another product? 
And it's all about the product and not about the business model. So that's just something you should ask yourself. Um, also, have you done everything to license it or not? And if you have, could you put it in the closet, not the garbage, and push it out again in eight months and then work on licensing another product? Or are you just such a believer in the product that it's going to save everybody in the world and that you have to do whatever you can and now you have to start a company? Again, not saying there's anything wrong with starting a company, but um, you know, just realize what you're getting into. Talk to people that have done it. And talk to people that aren't trying to sell you something. Talk to people that have done it and have nothing to gain from talking to you and can be really honest with you about how hard it is to start your own business, sell it yourself. So that would be my advice, Julie. Great question. Um, let's see. Uh, hey, from Vegas, Andrew. Thanks for being here again. I enjoyed my, this is from Soko. Uh, I enjoyed my first academy class yesterday. That's great. Um, our academy program is our group coaching program as opposed to our boot camp that's one-on-one. Um, after I got my PPA, for some reason, I lost fire. It's really helped me get back on track. Wow, okay, that's great. Yeah, you know, a lot of people, they have talked about this before. It's exciting that you can spend $70 and file a provisional patent yourself and say patent pending for an entire year. And that's exciting. And it gives you the warm and fuzzies, you know, especially the first time you do it. But the problem is if you don't know how to reach out to companies, don't know how to make your marketing materials or your list of companies, you don't have confidence about reaching out and doing talking to companies and all that, the PPA does you no good. You're just, you're just going to sit there and the PPA will just run, the year will run out on you. Now, if you haven't made any public disclosure, you can just file it again. But what's the point? So I think the reason why you got burnt out, Soko, is – you, you got excited about filing the PPA because you're I'm protected, right? Because we're always worried about getting ripped off. And and um, when you shouldn't be, um, I mean, in 20 years, we haven't had one of our students that I know of get ripped off by a company they showed to. Um, it'll happen one day, but it hasn't happened yet. But you felt good about that, and then you just, you're kind of going in circles after that. And that's that's really common. So don't feel bad about that. I'm glad that the academy class it, classes are getting you back on track and they're pretty they're very affordable compared to our, our boot camp which i think is very affordable too for one-on-one coaching but um okay mike hi andrew what are the pros and cons of assigning your patent to someone who who lots who lots of contacts can you can you do it with just a ppa well you you never assign your patent so when you license your product the licensing contract is saying to the company, look, you, this is the product and you need to pay me royalties, regardless of whether or not you have a patent. Sometimes it's dependent on a patent. Sometimes it doesn't matter if you have a patent or not. That's the best contract. You can't always get that. But um, And so with the patent thing, you don't assign it to the company. Because in the contract, it states that they have the right to manufacture it. And if you assign it to the company and not yourself, it's very hard to reassign it back to you. You might have to go through a lot of legal loopholes. If you just have the licensing contract that gives them the rights, and if they default on the contract, you literally just send them an email saying you defaulted. On it. You give them a chance. You talk to them, okay? You don't just do that out of the blue. That's like it's 
been bad for a while, they're not performing, and you let them know they're not performing on the contract, and you can get an attorney to send that if you want, which is a good idea. I would recommend that. And and then you're out. And the patent's still in your name, but the contract gave them the rights to manufacture it. But if you assign it to them, now you need to get them to reassign it to you. And, you know, you're actually in companies. They might be upset or whatever. So you, you never want to assign it to the company. So that's a great question. Um, so can you do it with just a PPA? Yeah, because... You're going to file a PPA, and once you do a licensing deal, if they feel the patent's really important, you're going to get them to give you the money to pay for it, or you're going to file it yourself. If they don't think it's important, then the contract can be dependent just on the product and not the patent. That's what a lot of people don't understand. The contract doesn't have to be dependent on a patent. That's the strongest contract. So then they can't get around and say, oh, we came up with an improvement. You can include that in there, too, um, you know, without a doubt. Um, so Mike, great question. Uh, Rosie said, if a PPA expire, can I renew it? No, you can't, but you can file the exact same thing again. So you can't continue a PPA. If you filed it, um, 13 months ago, it was good for 12 months. That's dead. Now you could take, if you didn't make public disclosure, which is show it at a swap meet, put it on a YouTube, public YouTube video, sell it somewhere then you could file that exact same provisional again and get a year from the new date. Let's say I filed the same provisional today, I could get a year from today. But you can't continue them, okay? That, it confuses people. You almost need a graph to understand it. But um, now, not if you made public disclosures for more than a year. Um, but even then, you could file a provisional patent on some insignificant improvement just to be able to say patent pending on your sell sheet. There's all sorts of tricks that... Patentries don't teach you this stuff because they want to get wrapped up in an expensive patent that, that we teach. Um, uh, what a uh, spunky, spunky monkey, okay. Uh, what approach do you take when you sign a contract but the final name of the product that the company chooses is a bit off? You know, you're good, you, you need to be, you know, if the company senses that if they make it purple and you want it pink, that you're going to throw a hissy fit, that can very well kill a deal. If they want to change the name and you just dig your heels in, you're welcome to do that, but it can very well kill the deal. In most cases, these companies are a better judge of it than you. Sometimes not, but um, it is what it is. So you can fight it or you can just let it go. I would say 95% of the time, I let them name it whatever they want to name it. I would voice your concern um, politely. Maybe if you – just complaining about something is one thing, but coming up with suggestion, saying, you know, I don't know if that's going to work given this and this. Maybe these names might work if you don't like my original name. Um, and be kind. But if they think and you're still in the midst of a deal that – you're going to freak out if they want to make it purple and you want to make it pink. That's like wacky inventor territory. You kind of, you, you give up a little bit when you're licensing. They might want to name it slightly different. They might want to make it slightly different colors. You lose a little bit of control. So, you know, I talked about the downsides of starting your own business, but that's one of the downsides of licensing. It's rare that I talk to an inventor that's not okay with these changes. They're like, I'm so happy to license this thing. Yeah, they can make a slightly different color. One thing that I'll say is um, pretty much expect a company to do the same quality level on your product as what they do. 
If they sell super high-end products, your products will be super high-end. If they sell middle-of-the-road, middle-of-the-road, they sell cheap, fall-apart products, that's pretty much what they're going to do. Don't expect them to do something dramatically different. You can talk about it. You could even wrap that into the contract if you wanted to. You know, um, there, there's, there are... There are definitely rules with licensing contracts, but there's no, um, you can change, there's also no rules. You can change it to whatever makes sense between the two of you, you know, but it's got to make sense. So um, thank you, Spunky Monkey. That was a good question. <laughs> um, let's see. I, you know, some people are asking questions about companies. I don't comment on other companies. So, um, uh, Mike says, can you give me advice on a big idea on sporting equipment? Not really in this forum, Mike. I, I can't. If you're a student of ours, you can. You can book a call with one of our advisors and they can talk with you if you have concerns. What's your concern? Is it licensable? Does it make sense? You know, you could give them the info. They could, they could give you their two cents on that uh, before you sign up. We don't want people signing up with the product doesn't make any sense. Um, you can just go to InventRight, click on the contact page, and you can book a call with us if you want to do that. Uh, let's see. Uh, not, none. Uh, I have been sitting on an idea for four years. What time is it? I'll get 20 minutes. Cool. I've been sitting on an idea for four years. It's made of paper and will worry of knockoffs after it hits the market because it's paper should a PPA be best to protect my idea? There's no way I can answer that, Non, without answering your question, without knowing what your product is. But, you know, PPAs, provisional patent applications, um, are oh, definitely most of the time the way you want to go. In a rare occasion, design patents can make sense, but um, it's always a good idea, even when you like, there's not much to protect here, but you can file a provisional to create that perceived protection and still say patent pending on it. And it just makes you look professional. So um, I, there's no issue with it being a paper product. It has some sort of functionality and utility. You can file a PPA just like any other product. Um, and you're thinking of it as a downside because what you're saying is made out of paper. Same thing with sewn products. And I think what you're saying is going to be really easy to do. That's a big plus. That's not a negative. That's a great plus. So your protection is not patents and stuff. It's protection. But I'm making a point here. Your best protection is the fact that if you license it to a really big company, they can push it out there hard and fast in a really big way. First to market is what we call it. And that is better protection than any patent. So what that does is makes everybody else the me too. And the big guy, the guy that you license to, the company you license to, kind of crushes the competition with their distribution. And, you know, if the company you license to is selling 80% of the product, because they push it out there big and hard, because that's you found um, a company that, that can do that, and you license to, the, to them. And there's a 20% of companies that are knocking it off. Congratulations, you're successful. It's not a problem. Um, and hopefully, you know, they'll, if it becomes a problem, they'll send cease and desist and, to those companies, and for a lot of them, they'll just go away because this is a big company. We're not going to mess with them, um, and but they're not going to go around suing everybody. Um, uh, 
Philip says, question, I'm having trouble determining what manufacturers are the right manufacturers. Should I be looking for raw manufacturers from China? Interesting, use the word raw, but it makes sense. Uh, like on Alibaba or brand manufacturers. Yeah, the answer is you kind of answered your own question, Philip. I mean, you just did someone in doubt. You license to the brand that's selling in the stores where you want to be. You don't care that that brand, that U.S. company is getting it made in China. You don't go to China for that. You go to the brand, the company that is selling the product. And you may or may not know where they're getting it manufactured. It doesn't matter. But you're not, you're not going to find potential licensees on Alibaba most of the time for most products. Um, you don't want to – this is the way I always put it. You don't want a company that can just make it. You want somebody that can make it and sell it and has the existing distribution and in the stores where you want to be. So that's a good question. I think, Philip, you already knew the answer somewhat, but um, you just uh, weren't sure. Uh, Mike says, in all caps, which is appropriate, I guess, is it a bad idea to contact companies with all the coronavirus going on? No, not at all. It's quite the opposite. Um, and we, we, I couldn't have predicted this, but this is what's happening with our students. These marketing managers are working from home. And what we found from talking to our students every day is they're, for the most part, not everybody, more responsive, not less. They're paying more attention to their email. They're probably not in endless meetings in some corporate boardroom. Um, they're not sitting around the water cooler as much. They're probably looking at their email because they're worried their boss might send an email, and they're really more on email than normal. They're also paying a lot more attention to their LinkedIn um, profile, and they're more responsive, not less. Are some companies in crisis mode, particularly smaller ones? Absolutely. Um, are some of the companies that our students are doing deals with right now, it's going to take them an additional you know, two, three, four, five months to launch the product. Sure, but our students are okay with that. So oddly enough, um, our, we're, our students are doing very well um, during this time. Are you going to come across some companies that are in some sort of crisis mode? Yes. Now, companies, it's very common for them to give you nonspecific answers. Oh, not, a, not at this time, not a right match for us. You know, really cool, but not now. Things like that. And I guarantee you that some companies now, they'll be like, oh, this is the, man the marketing manager. Again, they're not companies. They're people within the companies. They're giving you these responses. So the marketing manager could reply like, oh, I know. Normally I would say not a right match, but now I'll say no due to corona just because it's an answer people will accept. So for some of them that will be true, but for a lot of them it's not true. So some of our students are getting that a little bit, but they're getting in more not less which is great so which if they're going they're getting rejected sooner great it helps you move on to the ones that can still say yes so i i it's kind of good a good thing oddly enough in some ways i mean it's nice when you get uh rejection sooner because Sorry. they're paying attention to their email got my okay Oh, that was my Apple Watch. I thought it was my phone. It was my Apple Watch, Siri on my Apple Watch, thinking I was talking to it. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Um, so anyway, let's move on to the next one. Uh, so yeah, do, do guys, none of you, do not use COVID as an excuse. It's a great time to be licensing. Um, and that's with tons of our students actively working on their projects every day. That's what's going on. And yeah, some companies are in crisis mode, of course. 
And that's fine. You only need one to license it to. And that kind of tells you the ones that are in crisis mode. You don't want to license them. Um, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. I feel for, for companies that are hurting, without a doubt. Uh, Anthony, if I'm in Canada, can I license to a company in the U.S.? Yeah, there's no freaking difference. Anthony, we've had students in over 65 countries. I had this one woman, she was on a French Polynesian island. I think the population was 1,000 people. It makes no difference. They do not care. So, you know, it's, there's, there's absolutely no difference. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of nowhere, if you're in a really populated city, if you're in another country. Um, it does not matter. So Julie says, thanks for the great advice. You're welcome, Julie. Um, okay. That was a weird one. Let's see. Well, I don't know why you'd ask that question, Ed. So um, Ed, Ed was... You know, in respect to stealing your ideas webinar last Thursday, what should we do if our inventing coach takes our ideas, concepts, or products to their contacts and licenses them as their own? Ed, in, in the uh, 20 years we've been doing this, our coaches are highly, highly vetted. They all sign NDAs. We sign NDAs. Our coaches cannot disclose um, in any way, shape, or form what our students are working on. Also, any improvements, the coach is like, oh, you can make this tweak. Everything is yours. We take no percentage. So um, that would never, ever be a problem. It's never been a problem in 20 years. It's a valid, valid question. Um, and all our coaches are really highly vetted for who we hire. They're all employees. I'm very proud of our coaches. They're all very helpful people. We have um, students that have licensed five, six products. And it's no barb on them, but some of them I would never ask them to be a coach because they're wrapped up in their own product. It's not a bad thing in their own projects. Um, but our, our, our coaches, not only um, are they really good at licensing, but they're really kind, helpful people. Um, my family has always told me that I'm always wanting to help. So for me, when I co-founded InventRight with Stephen 20 years ago, I found my calling because I, I love helping people. And there's nobody better to help than somebody that's truly passionate about something that really wants to do it, which is all inventors, um, at least the ones that sign up with us that don't just have an idea but actually want to do the work. And there's nothing more fulfilling, and I think Stephen feels the same way, than helping somebody like that. And I think all our coaches feel the same way. So that has never happened. It will never happen. Um, and uh, we get our coaches to sign NDAs. So, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, let's see. Uh, Nick says, I paid 140 instead of 70 for my PPA. Well, it, it depends, Nick. If you earn under, I don't remember the dollar finger. It was under 100, 150K, somewhere in that range annual household income. If you earn less than that, you can file as a micro entity for $70. Um, if you're not within that income level, technically you should be paying 140. I guarantee you that there's tons of people that make more than, I don't remember what the dollar figure is. Is 150 household income or 120? I don't remember what the number is. So don't quote me on that. But um, if you make 
if you make more than that, people are a lot of people are still paying the 70. And I don't know what the deal is there. You'd have to talk to an attorney. But I think you could probably go back if the product really hit and pay the difference and be fine. You'd have to consult an attorney on that. I've never had that ever become an issue. Um, but that's the difference between the 140 and the $70 for a provisional. 70 is for a micro entity. You have to have an annual household income under a certain amount. And then 140 is if you don't have it under that amount. Um, still, 140 is very reasonable compared to what a patent costs. Um, yeah, yeah. Chad's making a good point. Yes, after you got your PPA, it would be awfully risky for a coach or a company to try to copy your idea. If they do, you've got first rights and you can take them to the mat. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've never had one of our students knocked off by a company that um, they had approached to license in 20 years um, that I know of. And so that's a pretty incredible track record. It's definitely not happening with the coach guys, not on Stephen and I's watch. We hire great people. So uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, let's see. Some people are asking questions about another company. I can't make comments about other companies. Um, uh, Zam says, I'm not sure I understand this question. You said stating uh, to a contract manufacturer that a retailer is interested in a product. Is that okay? would you say to the retailer, I'm presenting this product to this manufacturer, what do you think? Um, not a contract manufacturer, because a contract manufacturer, all they do is make stuff. They don't distribute or sell things to stores. They don't call on Walmart. So um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say to a contract manufacturer, I'm going to approach Walmart, and if they're interested, will you make it? That's not right. Because what you're saying, the contract manufacturer, you should sell stuff to Walmart and I'm going to license this to you. And they're like, we just make stuff for you. We charge you and then we give it to you and you sell it wherever the heck you want. So that makes no sense. Now, a variation of that, Zam, if you wanted to approach potential licensees, companies that are already selling in Walmart, for example, um, and, and you could approach a buyer at Walmart, get their interest. You're going to be a little pissed when you say, well, I don't have it to deliver, you know. But you got the interest, and then you say, well, if I license this to one of your vendors, will you do it then? You can do that. You can do that pull-through marketing. It's a little risky. You kind of piss off the buyer at the store because they're like, what? You don't have it ready to sell to me? But then you go to the store, the manufacturer that's already in Walmart and say, look, Bob, the buyer here, he's interested. You can pull that through. And so we've had students do that. But not a contract manufacturer that just makes stuff like one on Alibaba that doesn't um, – actually sell products to stores. That's a, that's a different story. Uh, Craig, what is the difference between licensing a product to a small company versus a big one? It's a good question. Um, you know, it's not necessarily always the size of the company. Uh, you know, if a small company has big ideas for your product and big distribution plans, great. And if a big company has small ideas for your products, you always want to qualify it. I know they're huge, but what's the plan for the product? I had a student once where he's really excited because it's a giant company, 
and they wanted to do very limited distribution just to test it. And I'm like, well, you, what's their plan? And you got to put all that in the contracts. So there's terms, you know? And so um, I, I don't think there's that much of a difference. I mean, uh, it depends on how big or how small. What was that? Craig asked that. Um, what are some differences between big companies and small ones? You know, sometimes the smaller ones will interact with you a little bit more, listen to you a little more. But even in a big one, if you've got a good person you're connected with, um, a good marketing manager that's going to be your voice within the company and you can speak up uh, or even speak up with the team, it's going to depend on the company. Um, small companies can act like big companies and big companies can act small and think small. So don't just um, don't just assume that, that, that they're, they're just because they're big, they're going to do the right thing or just because they're small, they're not going to sell. Um, you need to interview them extensively about what they're going to do. Uh, Philip said, thank you for your answer. Oh, my God, I feel like I can move forward now. Great. Forgot what your question was, Philip. Let's see. Uh, oh, reach out to manufacturers in different countries. You had some other ones there, too. Okay. Um, let's see. We've got a few more minutes here. Um That's interesting. Oliver says, would it be a mistake to run targeted sponsored video ads on LinkedIn to a few big manufacturers in my space? I got my PPA, but not sure if I should be worried about them taking the idea if they see it. So, no, I don't think that would be a good idea, Oliver. First of all, when you're licensing, you don't want to make public disclosure and run some ad. What he's saying, guys, is, you know, on Facebook and LinkedIn, you can be very targeted ads sometimes where it only goes to certain people that might see it. That's just a shot in the dark for licensing. And I don't know, I don't like that making that public disclosure. It's just so weird that they would see an ad. Like I, to be honest with you, I, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't even see ads. I don't know. Maybe I'm not paying attention, but that's, that says a lot. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I don't, I don't see ads. I don't know where the ads are, but maybe you're talking about Facebook, for example. Um, no, I would approach them directly. Like, why go through all that trouble? Add them to your network, and then a couple days later, reach out to them and, and see if they're interested. That just seems like way more effort and making public disclosure and just not necessary. Um, I like this. Uh, John Mc3 says, we all suffer from inventor paranoia. Best way to get through it is like Nike says, just do it. I agree. I agree. Oddly enough, Nike's not very open to outside ideas. Just a funny side note. Um, let's see. Uh, AJ says, a company has asked me to send over my proposal as they want to produce my concept. I do not know what to send. I, I think that, AJ, if they're asking for a proposal, you didn't approach the whole thing right. They don't understand that you want to do a licensing deal. And um, so you need to make that more clear. That would be a long conversation on how to make that clear. But you, you, were, you were not clear with them on what your intentions were. But that's fine. I mean, they asked for a proposal. So 
you you have to write something up on what the proposal is. But I mean, I I would get on the phone with them and talk first about the product. Okay, that would be my advice there. That's what I would tell one of our students. Um, Uh, Julio says, can company take a product with just a non-disclosure? Yeah, they can do whatever the hell they want. Um, but realize most companies don't want to sign your non-disclosure form, and you got your provisional patent, so you have to ask yourself the question, this is not legal advice, to so seek services of an attorney if you need legal advice. What makes you think that every company should sign an NDA? What made you think that? What makes you think that an NDA provides any rock-solid protection, too? Um, most of our students file provisionals and approach companies, and they're okay. They've got the paper trail on what they showed the company and when and their provisional patent. Uh, but again, that's not legal advice. Um, yeah, I, Rondell, I, I can't comment on other companies. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. We only got a few minutes left. William, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, Vic, man, you joined late, Vic. Well, you can watch the replay, man. I think I think when we end this, um, it takes a while to encode, but then it goes right back in the YouTube channel. So no worries, Vic. You can watch the replay because we're just about to, to finish up here. Uh, Craig says, thanks for your answer. I submitted my idea to a number of places and gotten a few rejections from some bigger companies, but I was worried if I have to go with a small company. You know, I mean, I mean, don't worry about it until the time comes, Craig. I mean, if you don't get any interest from the big companies and a small company makes you an offer, you know, move forward with the small company. Just because you're talking to them doesn't obligate you, okay? And you can run the numbers. You got to interview them appropriately. We guide our students to do that and, and see what kind of, of money it would end up being and decide if you're okay with that or not. And if you're not okay with it, keep trying to license it to the bigger companies. You know, we reach back out to them later. But if you're okay with it, sometimes a small deal is better than no big deal at all. Not every product's going to make tons of money overnight. You know, I mean, this this perception everybody's going to make you're going to make a million dollars overnight with one invention is not accurate. Some products make more, more than others. You know. Let's see. All right. Well, thank you, Underdog, for all the thumbs up. I think we hit the hour. You're welcome, Philip. Um, <laughs> Blue Raspberries 111. Andrew, is it a bad thing if I can only generate two to three ideas a day? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's enough, and I think that's problematic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you spend 10 minutes and you generate those ideas and you put them aside, but then you spend an hour during the day actually working on your inventions, coming up with ideas is not working on your inventions. That's ideation creation that comes easily to a lot of you. You got to do all the stuff that you don't want to do, blue raspberries. And that's the, that's the handle, by the way. I'm not crazy with the way I'm talking. Um, 
you, you got to do all the stuff you don't want to do. And most of the stuff we guide our students to do is not as much fun as coming up with the idea. Um, but you got to do it. You have no choice. And I think that our YouTube channel and everything that we do empowers people, removes a lot of those roadblocks. And hopefully I feel like that all has helped you. Okay. Thank you for all the kind word, guys. Um, I'm just going to finish out with what I like to say sometimes is, you know, for most of you, the vast majority of you, coming with, up with ideas has become, especially with for blue raspberries, uh, has become part of who you are. This is very important to you. And for a lot of you, what I've heard from people is after a while, it gets tiring just coming up with ideas and not doing things with them. And then you see some of them come out in the marketplace. Oh, I should have done something with that. And so instead of being something fun, it starts to become kind of a thorn in your side um, because you're not doing anything with it. And you guys, just the fact that you sat on with me here for a full hour and listened to me talk about licensing and the business side of it and all that beyond your idea, you know, the action steps you need to take. Um, you've separated yourself from most inventors, but coming up with ideas is part of who you are embrace it if you choose to you don't have to you can just enjoy coming up with ideas and never doing anything with them but i suggest that for those of you that are willing to do the work embrace it enjoy it and i'm just happy that myself and steven and everybody in invent right all our coaches are here to empower you guys um, with something that's so important to you um, you guys are like product artists you know artists they they do artwork and they see their art in people's hallways and in museums and for you guys, you want people to enjoy their art, that product, and to um, see it in the stores. And so you guys are product artists. So an artist that just paints in their garage and never shows their art to anybody, you don't want to be that kind of artist. You want to be, you want to get it out there. So I encourage you to do it. Whether you get our help or somebody else's help, I encourage you to do it. Licensing is a very low-risk approach to it. And um, that's what, thank you for all the kind words, everybody. Um, and I will be doing this again next Wednesday. So you guys are welcome to come back, watch our YouTube show. If you could kind of smash the like button on the, on the channel, that would be great. Or on the video, that would be great as well as subscribe to the channel. I think we're getting close. I need to check to 40,000 when I hit 40,000 subscribers. So if you're not subscribed, go ahead and subscribe as well. And I just want to remind everybody to take care, keep inventing and we'll catch you next time. See you guys. Bye.